You are listening to Uncommentary. Hey folks, this is Marty. I want to remind you again about my friend Byron at Hearts and Minds Books and encourage you to order from this uh, independent bookstore up in Pennsylvania. Uh, it's heartsandmindsbooks.com, and when you go there, you'll see easily the navigation to uh, request a book or to ask about a book. Uh, they're super helpful. If you'll mention Uncommentary, uh, on some books you can get a discount. They can't discount everything because of the nature of their small operation, but when they can, they do. And I really encourage you to check him out. Uh, he mentioned to me recently that there has been some business come, come his way as a result of the podcast. That makes me like really happy. That's heartsandmindsbooks.com. Uh, you can actually leave a card on file. I do this all the time. And then email him when you want a new book and how you want it shipped to you. And he can handle it uh, right there through your email. And uh, it's really, really encouraging to him. And so I encourage you to check him out. So every now and then I get a hold of a book that um, really messes me up, uh, I guess in a good way, not like wrecks me like a spiritual insight type book, but just messes up my patterns of thinking and causes me to um, evaluate some things that uh, I've been, that I've learned or taken for granted or absorbed uh, in my past. And one of the, one of those types of books is called Jesus and John Wayne, how White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation by Calvin, um, Calvin College Professor Kristen Cobus Dumay, uh, Calvin University, excuse me, Calvin University Professor. Um, so I read this a couple of months ago. This is November. I probably read it in, uh, in September. And um, the frustrating thing about books like this is uh, there's, a, there's a lot of stuff that I recognize immediately as, yeah, this is probably accurate and I should probably evaluate how these types of things have impacted me. And um, the, other, the other thing that I think is uh, what do I need to change and what do I need to keep? And so this book, like uh, Kevin Cruz's One Nation Under God, uh, is a book of history with evaluations on how that history has affected theology and specifically uh, evangelical theology in the North American context, the American context, and then even more specifically uh, how it has affected the white evangelicals who hold this theology. And so it's a, it's a really interesting book. It's a heartbreaking book. It's an aggravating book. So it's the kind of book that uh, really is worth your time. And so I'm really, really happy to have uh, Kristen Cobus Dumay on Uncommentary today, and I hope that this uh, stirs you, angers you, uh, enlightens you, but most of all causes you to think and to evaluate. Well, I don't know if my guest today had previously been a stranger to controversy, but she's not a stranger to controversy anymore. <laughs> she's just published a book called Jesus and John Wayne, How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation. Kristen Cobus Dumay, welcome to Uncommentary. Oh, thank you. It's great to be here. So you are a uh, Calvin University professor of history, right? Yes, I am. Well, who and what are you beyond those academic credentials? <laughs> Come on, so, you got to have a life besides <laughs> that. Come on. You're putting me on the spot now. I, I, I really <laughs> don't. I, I have to think here. Let's see. No, I'm, I'm, I watched a I, video of you on YouTube and you were about to go outside and like plant a garden or rake leaves or something. So I know you do some <laughs> hey. stuff. Let's see. Well, we used to have a chicken, but our chicken was just killed by a hawk. Oh, no. So, uh, yeah, um, 
we, uh, I've, I've got three kids that keeps me pretty busy. Fortunately, they're still in school. We're hoping that that holds on for yeah. the next few weeks with the COVID situation. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm a historian, I'm a writer, I do a lot of, um, uh, you know, public scholarship. I'm also a practicing Christian, a member of the Christian Reformed denomination, and yeah, that's that's about it. Okay, well that's that's more than that's more than you started with because at first you were like in a, <laughs> in a in a capsule and you've never done anything other than write. Um, it feels like that some days. It does. <laughs> Uh, so your book is Jesus and John Wayne. The title is very intriguing. The entire book is worth reading. Um, it's uh, it's good. It's informative. Uh, but I want to I want you to like start in your beginning where you have saddle up as one of your early chapters and you kind of give a backdrop for what you're talking about here. Kind of lead us into uh, evangelicalism kind of springing out of the context that it was that it came out of what John Wayne has to do with anything. I mean, what is this book? <laughs> Yeah, so the first chapter is really there to set the stage mostly to to demonstrate that things have not always been the way they are now, mm. right? Uh, that's that's one thing that history does so powerfully. Uh, I think that Christians and maybe evangelicals in particular have this idea that, you know, so much uh, is God-ordained, you know, mm-hmm. ideas about gender, ideas about our nation, that, that so much has kind of just been handed to us as truth. But one thing that history does is it it shows that that's, this isn't really the case, that so much changes over time. So that opening chapter really stretches back all the way into the 19th century just to show how things used to be different. So ideas of Christian manhood have really varied over time. In uh, the 19th century, the kind of dominant ideal was one of gentlemanly restraint. That was Victorian Christian manhood. But you also had a a kind of Southern evangelical masculinity that was more about kind of dominance and control and protection of uh, women and children and and, uh, in their minds enslaved people as well. and and then we we see it by the early 20th century um, across the country kind of an embrace of a more muscular Christianity a, a, a more rugged masculinity somebody like Teddy Roosevelt um, mm-hmm. demonstrates that and that's linked to ideas of religion of uh, to ideas of race of whiteness and of American power of American imperialism and so I sketch that out um, but then I also show I mean when you get to World War One for example I think things are a little surprising there because um, they. There we see that it's actually liberal Protestants who are, if anything, more militaristic than conservative Protestants, mm-hmm. right? And and that many conservative Protestants were not Christian nationalists. They were uncomfortable with the idea that America was a Christian nation. Uh, that didn't make sense to them, right? Only souls souls could be saved mm-hmm. and become Christian. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I just really wanted to sketch out how you know things have changed over time, so that when we get to the 1940s, 1950s, we can start to see uh, kind of the building blocks of more contemporary arrangements that we would recognize today, this kind of Christian nationalism uh, that permeates conservative Protestantism and that links that that is linked both to gender traditionalism, like gender difference, masculinity, femininity, and to um, uh, to militarism, to American power. Isn't um, so you mentioned the Victorian man. Um, mm-hmm. you know, with his stiff collar and his, uh, patent leather boots. Um, but the reality, I mean, even if he's the gentleman, uh, the gentle gentleman, uh, who helps the ladies over the mud puddle and that kind of thing, throws his jacket down. Uh, 
in Victorian times, a lot, I mean, you had to like be able to take care of your horses. You had to be able to hook them up and you had to ride a wagon and you had to farm and you had to cut down trees. I mean, there were a lot of things that would be, tr- you know, that Teddy Roosevelt <laughs> might have been doing in Victorian England uh, that what's the what's the differential in how those things are interpreted or viewed so that Victorian masculinity even though it might have featured some of the things of the later versions. And I'll, I'll say, I'll use the term Christic manhood, the idea that everybody's got to have muscles and be (laughs) beaten on stuff all the time. Uh, So how do those two things differ, even though there are some, some commonalities? Well, I would say, you know, back in in the Victorian era, I mean, you sketched a, you know, a very kind of effeminate version of Victorian (laughs) masculinity. Um, But, but I I didn't have any lipstick on that guy. Come on. Right, right, right. That's not quite, quite what I was going for. Uh, (laughs) You know, it's, it's, uh, more of an idea. I mean, you're right. There were a lot of people, a lot of men were um, during the 19th century still, you know, really working with their hands, mm-hmm. building something. They were. And for that reason, it, you know, their masculinity wasn't really they weren't really obsessed with it. They were, you know, so they weren't obsessed that, with those aspects of it. Exactly. Okay. It was kind of okay. a given. Yeah. It was a given. Right. Oh, yeah. And, good. Um, when that um, when that kind of working with your hands by the late 19th, early 20th century starts to really, you know, uh, give way to kind of middle management positions, uh, even men working in factories, which is, you know, not the same thing as kind of working for yourself, mm-hmm. working with your own hands, you know, uh, that's when this uh, kind of, you know, quote unquote crisis of masculinity comes Mm. up. You know, what does it mean to be a man? Because the old givens were no longer holding sway. Okay, good. Um, So John Wayne's first movie, I think was called The Rifleman, if I remember, or The Stagecoach, maybe. Um, Right, right. And it's old enough that it may have predated my grandparents. I know it was, I mean, it's old. He's like, 12 years old when he's in that movie. You know, I don't know. He's like really young. <laughs> um, so, but you, you draw a picture in the book and you draw, uh, a, a, not even an analogy, you draw a connection between <clears throat> what it meant to think as an evangelical yet John Wayne kind of was the pattern more than Jesus was in a lot of ways. Uh, flesh that out a little bit. So people who don't really remember John Wayne that much, even though his name yeah. still is so weird. His name still comes up. He's been dead for like 25 or 30 years uh-huh. and people still bring his name up. And I'm like, dude, is there, has there not been a man since John Wayne died? I mean, you know, what is going on? Even Patrick Swayze and Roadhouse did something, you know? No, no, no. Yeah. Up until just a few years back, he was still America's number one you know, favorite movie star. That so. is amazing to me. Yeah. Yeah. So he's, he's a symbol, right? He, he has become the symbol and that's really the John Wayne that I'm, that I'm dealing with in mm-hmm. the book, the symbol that John Wayne became. Um, and, you know, so in the 1940s, he, uh, you know, he, he rose to stardom as this cowboy hero. Uh, through a number of different films. Uh, but then what was interesting was he also starred in Sands of Iwo Jima, mm-hmm. so World War II uh, movie, where you take this then kind of vintage American cowboy heroism and then bring that to the battlefields uh, right in the Second World War, mm-hmm. you know, the Good War. Um, but then where it gets really interesting is when he stars in the Green Berets, right? Mm-hmm. And then and then you can take like all that is good about American power and innocence and you know, good guy versus bad guy and the good guy always wins and then play out that fantasy 
on the battlefields of Vietnam. Mm. And by that time, he has become, I mean, not just a, a, a just a amazingly famous movie star, um, but he has also, by the 60s, become a symbol of kind of nostalgic American manhood. Mm. Because by the 1960s, the masculinity that he embodied was really falling out of favor with many Americans. First, you had the anti-war movement and and just the, you know, Vietnam War not turning out like people had expected. Right. It was not the good war and we weren't winning it. Right. Uh, and you had the rise of feminism, the rise of the civil rights movement. And so all of these things are kind of destabilizing that um, kind of nostalgic understanding of America, American power and American masculinity. But John Wayne just stood against that as this icon of, you know, traditional, even retrograde American masculinity. And he knew it. He embodied that. And he also expressed that through his politics very clearly. Mm -hmm. Um, But it was really his on-screen persona that um, many conservative Americans kind of held up as the ideal of what was lost Mm -hmm. and what needed to be regained. I had a a John Wayne record album when I was a kid. Have you ever seen it? (laughs) No, no. Yeah, I don't think he actually sang. I think I, I don't remember that he did. Maybe he did one song, but it was more music and he him reading stuff over, like I don't know, parts of the Constitution or whatever like that. Uh, oh, interesting. Yeah, so I could see how a reading poetry, like like American um, American uh, patriotic type poems. Yes. Yeah. Um, so I can see how how that how he would have been like that symbol um, for a long, long time. Um, how did it relate to evangelicalism more directly? Um, I mean, I never like we never had John Wayne Day in my church growing up and we never <laughs> there weren't any pictures of him on the wall. Uh, That's so, really funny because I've heard from people who did have John oh Wayne Day at their church. You've so. got to be kidding me. The, yes. Oh they, they brought in is. a John Wayne impersonator. Yes. Regularly every year. Yeah. Good night alive. <laughs> I don't even know what I'm doing. That is amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So what does John Wayne have to do with evangelicals? Let me tell you, I did not set out to write a book about John Wayne. Right? And, and of course, this isn't exactly a book about John Wayne. <laughs> yeah, but you what, couldn't what find I... any connection from John Aston, so you went to John Wayne. Right, I know how that works. Right. So I know I feel a little sheepish. You know, this was, uh, <laughs> here I am. Let's talk about John Wayne. But uh, no, what, what uh, I, I stumbled upon this title and the connection early by reading just so many books Mm. on Christian manhood. And what struck me very early on was that for all their talk of being, you know, Bible-believing Christians, uh, evangelicals, when they're writing about Christian masculinity, Christian manhood, I mean, you'd find Bible verses quoted here or there, usually out of context, but really they were looking not to the scriptures and not to Jesus Mm. for their models of what does it mean to be a Christian man. They loved Hollywood movies. Mm. And, you know, so this this book could have been called uh, Jesus and Mel Gibson's William Wallace from the movie Braveheart, but that didn't quite roll off the tongue in the same way. The spine Uh, of the book is only so long. Exactly. You know, and there's there's other, you know, just mythical warriors and, you know, soldiers and cowboys and, uh, you know, General Patton and General MacArthur. And there's just so many of these kind of secular models mm-hmm. of masculinity that they then embrace as models of Christian manhood. But it was John Wayne that kept popping up. And like you, you know, at first I was kind of puzzled, like, really, we're still talking about John Wayne here? <laughs> but we were over and over again. And in the sense of, you know, like Eric Metaxas wrote, we all know that John Wayne is the 
icon of American masculinity, by which he also meant of Christian masculinity. And so, so that's how I ended up, you know, saying, okay, there is something to this. And when you know the history, when you know John Wayne's history, you know, the history of evangelicals consolidating as a political, partisan political movement in the 60s and 70s, it, it all kind of makes sense. I'm talking to Kristen Cobus Dumay about her book, Jesus and John Wayne, How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured Nation, and we'll be back right after this. So I want to tell you about a couple of books that I've received, actually three uh, that I've received since the podcast was on hiatus, and uh, recommend that you check them out. I'm not, I haven't read them all yet, but they were sent to me for review, uh, and I haven't had a chance to actually review them. But I'm going to bring them to your attention in case you might want to check them out. One is called Rethink Yourself, The Power of Looking Up Before Looking In by my good buddy Trevin Wax, who's now a VP at Lifeway Christian Resources. And uh, follow your heart. You are enough. You do you. Trevin examines a lot of these kinds of sayings that have arisen in our culture and examines them in light of Scripture. And this book is called Rethink Yourself. This is a good discipleship work, so I want to encourage you to take a look at it. Uh, also, from Billy Hollowell, Playing with Fire. This is a book on uh, a modern investigation into demons, exorcisms, and ghosts. So um, if, you're, if you're the scaredy-cat type, you might want to pass this one by. But if you're doing some study on spiritual, uh, spiritual warfare, or if you've always been interested in ghosts and what the Bible says about those kinds of things, the spirit world, uh, check this out. It is uh, Playing with Fire. A Modern Investigation into Demons, Exorcism, and Ghosts by Billy Hallowell. This is published by Thomas Nelson. Uh, Then a big old honking book called The First 100 Years of Christianity, An Introduction to Its History, Literature, and Development uh, by Udo Schnell. Uh, This is a fantastic-looking book. Again, I haven't gotten into it, but this is the very kind of book that I would reference over and over again in sermon preparation. It's many hundreds of pages long, about 650 uh, the first 100 years of Christianity, not only about theology, history, literature, and development by Udo Schnell. And I uh, t- hope you'll take a look at that one. That's from Baker. It is an academic type book, so it's not cheap. But if this is your kind of thing, uh, I encourage you to take a look. Don't forget to check out Hearts and Minds Books with my buddy Byron, Byron Borger. And uh, you can find them online, Hearts and Minds Books. And you can order through them. Uh, mention uh, Uncommentary Podcast, and if they're able to give you a discount on a specific book, then they will do so. They can't get every book, but man, it is good to work with a local bookstore and encourage them and keep them in business. All right, so let's go ahead and jump to the big gun. Um, Billy Graham is uh, featured uh, somewhat prominently. He's not like half the book, but he's featured prominently in your book. Um, And most of us who were raised evangelical, like I was, I'm not going to make one of those trite jokes like Billy Graham, you know, Billy Graham was part of the Trinity, but <laughs> Billy Graham was really highly respected. And you yeah. know, we went, to, we went to his crusades and we participated in the counseling, many, many folks, and we prayed for him and we sent him money and we saw, you know, shots of, of hundreds and thousands of people walking the aisles while the buses waited. And all of these things were part and parcel of our growing up. And we couldn't fathom, that there would be any, I don't want to say negative side, but there could be any non-public, non-spiritual, non-evangelistic side to Billy Graham. Uh, but in some ways there was. His politics was very, uh, very specific. Uh, his relationships were very specific. Uh, tell us a little bit about what you found when you were doing your research related to how Billy Graham's, uh, Billy Graham in some ways, uh, 
modeled this John Wayne thing. Yeah, Billy Graham was so important to mid-century American evangelicalism, right? In the 1940s, when evangelicals decided they really needed to band together, they had been doing, you know, their work in kind of isolation, uh, you know, churches, Bible institutes, and so on spread across the country. In the early 40s, they they decided, you know, we need to come together to exert greater influence over the nation. Mm-hmm. And Billy Graham was right at the heart of that. And he was such a charismatic person, um, but he uh, he was also very ambitious mm-hmm. and very strategic. And, and uh, evangelicals knew that uh, to really reach America, they needed to uh, to use the culture. They needed to use uh, radio and then soon television. They needed magazines with you know tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of subscribers. Uh, they needed you know uh, Christian publishing to really take hold and to distribute this message into all the corners of the nation. And, and again, Billy Graham was was very much at the center of that. Now, I think evangelicals um, have told themselves, and and Billy Graham certainly helped perpetuate this notion that this was all, you know, pure evangelism, mm-hmm. spreading the good news of Jesus, saving souls. And that was definitely his motivation. But the the faith that he was um, uh, promoting, evangelizing, was right, wrapped up with the, these cultural values. Mm-hmm. And he was very um, clear about, uh, you know, promoting patriarchy, uh, the submission of women uh, as part of his understanding of what was biblical Christianity. Mm-hmm. He was, uh, you can kind of forget this, especially for younger uh, Christians today who might have this image of Billy Graham as, you know, a, a kindly older gentleman. If that's not, <laughs> that's not well, how he, he was after a while. <laughs> Eventually, right? But in the, in the 40s, 50s, 60s, he was dashingly handsome. Mm. He was this, you know, like square jawed, just, you know, um, when I see those of, pictures, yeah, when I, I was about to say, when I see those pictures of him from that era, I think of Errol Flynn. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, mean, I, I was very careful about what, you know, pictures I selected of mm-hmm. him because I needed to disrupt, you know, these later, um, images mm-hmm. of him as this, uh, you know, just kindly older gentleman. Uh, and so he was vibrant. He was, uh, he was, like I said, ambitious. He was ambitious in terms of, um, political power. Um, very calculating. And, you know, he was early on very partisan, too. I mean, he mm-hmm. even thought about running for president himself. That was a shocker to me. Yeah, yeah. So I needed to, to you know, it, it, for evangelicals who can, who understand that Billy Graham was just this catalyzing force for American evangelicalism in the post-war era, they need to understand that, you know, gender and politics and partisan politics were right at the heart of that. Um, so when I was, <laughs> you're so going to laugh at this. So when I was a young man <clears throat> watching the, uh, I wrote a letter to the editor of the Atlanta journal constitution, defending Oliver North. <laughs> and, um, I, I probably don't have a copy of it anymore, but I definitely wrote the letter and probably had its share of snark in the, uh, in, in it as well, but they did publish it as best of my memory. They published it. Um, but it seems to me that this, that the, uh, I don't want to say infatuation. I think this is the wrong word, but the, um, the appreciation for Oliver North, uh, amongst, uh, evangelicals is 
very similar to this appreciation for John Wayne uh, in the sense that it's true manhood, it's this, it's that, or the other. Uh, but there seems there, it seems to me, or it's seeming to me more and more, that evangelicals are facing kind of a um, soul-searching in which we have mm-hmm. to determine whether our theology has brought us to uh, uh, embrace a certain type of culture or whether embracing a certain type of culture has actually formed our theology. Um, Dustin Burgess, I think, is the... Um, the uh, not sociologist, maybe he is a sociologist, but he does a lot of polling and polling data interpretation on Twitter. And I think he's the one who has now said uh, evangelical Christians, especially white evangelical Christians, are not evangelicals who happen to be Republican. They're Republicans who happen to be religious. Yes. Yes. Um, that's Ryan Burge. Yeah. Yeah. And so how, I mean, Oliver North, honestly, I mean, he was... <laughs> He's the guy who's showing this to us. I mean, what's going on there? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I became a little obsessed with Oliver North myself, as you can tell from the book. <laughs> I kept waiting for my editor to, you know, pull me back, but he let it, he let it go. Uh, yeah, it was so fascinating because I was in grade school uh, in the 1980s and in a conservative Christian community. And I remember just being completely confused by Oliver North because my family subscribed to you know, the mainstream media magazines like Newsweek and Time. Right. And um, and and I remember like just being confused because I in my circles, he was seen as this hero, right? Mm-hmm. But then on the news at night and in these magazines, I'd see, wait, but he's on trial. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he committed crimes. And and I, I just never really understood who he was or what he had done. It didn't make sense to me. And so it was fun to go back and, and kind of uncover um, you know, the the reasons for his support. You know, this was right at the time that we see evangelicals really embracing the military mm-hmm. and military as as a as a kind of um, enclave for traditional American values and traditional manhood mm-hmm. uh, masculinity, and it was this kind of militant masculinity that understood that the world was evil, and that sometimes you just needed to do what needed to be done, mm-hmm. and that the ends would justify the means, and that is precisely this kind of patriotic, you know, virtue, quote unquote, that that uh, Oliver North professed and and practiced and and that's how they um, you know how they understood him and he knew better he he was in the military his heart was in the right place and you know any crimes he may or may not have committed were justified in the pursuit of of this this greater good in the pursuit of righteousness and uh, it was really striking I had no idea I mean I knew that evangelicals liked Oliver North. I didn't know quite how much you know they they yeah. celebrated him. Folks like Falwell and uh, I mean uh, uh, Beverly LaHaye and mm-hmm. others. Um, and then he you know he's invited to speak at the the Southern Baptist Convention. Oh, yeah. I think and I was and there. so they're tight. Oh, you were. I think so. Yeah. There are big flags everywhere, <laughs> and yeah. So this just goes way back. I was definitely there uh, at one of the SBC meetings when we had some military guys rappelling from the ceiling into the um, into the <gasps> auditorium. How did I not know this? I this needs to be in the reprint. <laughs> um, I, I I won't guess, but I I do think it was in uh, in the Nashville SBC around two thousand and four or five. I could be wrong about that, but oh, my it, goodness, I, think that's right. I need to find that out. 
Wonderful. Um, yes, exactly. So, so here we are. Uh, I mean, I keep coming back to this in my head because it's, it's where I've been. I mean, I was raised in this. I won't even say that I've jettisoned all of it. I'm certainly recent, you know, I'm seeking my own, uh, seeking God's own counsel, I guess, to, to help me distinguish the wheat from the chaff, mm-hmm. um, in, in some of this, uh, and the part that does, um, get me sometimes is the nationalism part of it is the, the secret, the syncrety or syncretism yeah. between Christianity, uh, historically and this really modified, uh, of late version that is, um, so wrapped up in, uh, America and Americanism that it's, it's essentially its own branch of, of religion to me, uh, uh, Christian nationalism, yeah. uh, which seems to me to be, you know, in with this whole John Wayne motif that would celebrate Oliver North to where, the greater good doesn't become the greater righteousness as we read in scripture. It becomes the greater good for the country, whatever is the greater good for the country uh, as an, as a governmental entity, I guess mm-hmm. is the biblical greater good. And it just, it, it really confuses me that we seem to have come this way. Do you see, is that, am I interpreting that well? Yes, yes, you are. And I, I would add to it. And it's the greater good of the country, but the country as perceived in a specific way. Okay. And the thing about Christian nationalism is it is not exclusively, but but inherently a, a, a white Christian ideal. Mm. That if you take this notion that America was founded as a Christian nation and that God has blessed America and America, you know, that America is God's favored nation and things were going really well until, you know, usually it's right around the 1960s where they point to things falling apart. Now, just think about that narrative. That makes absolutely no sense for black Christians. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Things were great until the 1960s right. when everything fell apart. And we got right? a right Just, to vote. Man, it all went to hell after that. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, you have slavery, you have Jim Crow, you have lynchings, you have like that's that's their American history. Mm. And so when white Christians celebrate Christian America and America's Christian founding and Christian values, uh, they do so without mentioning race but they are deeply shaped by their own white racial identity mm-hmm. in in promoting that vision. Uh, and so, you know, that's just a fundamental divide right now, not just in American churches, but really in American society. This, you know, debate over what is American history? Mm-hmm. Um, how should we be inspired? What do we need to lament and confess? And, and what do we need to change? What direction do we need to take this country in? And, and, and those are just fundamental disagreements agreements right now. So um, Donald Trump comes along um, and gets, seven, I guess it was 78% of the white evangelical vote, or maybe they mm-hmm. called it 78% of the evangelical vote. Uh, I, I'm aware that the, the, the definition of evangelical yeah. changes based on who is wielding that particular sword at yes. that particular moment. Yes. And that it it can be used to describe people who don't describe themselves as even. I'm not telling you this. I'm saying this for those who may not know. Yes, exactly. Uh, it can be used uh, to describe people who don't consider themselves evangelical for the purposes of bolstering the perceived influence of the ter- of the people called evangelicals in American society. So mm-hmm. there are a lot of black uh, Christians in, in, in uh, traditional black or historic black churches that don't consider themselves evangelical for a number of reasons, some of which are racial. Yeah. But those who then 
define evangelical, define it in such a way that they get to include all those people <laughs> yes. in their estimates. And so um, when we see that like 78% of white evangelicals then voted for Donald Trump, and uh-huh. then I think, and so we've just had the other election a week ago, and it was still, I think, 75 or maybe, I think Biden got 24%. Uh-huh. Uh, but but Trump didn't lose very many at all. No. And again, so we've got John Wayne, who is, you know, he, he's not he might be kind of a, a professing Christian, but his lifestyle certainly doesn't match uh, a fruit of the spirit type of life or the life of Christ type of life publicly, at least. You've got Oliver North, who can who uses the right terminology and probably can come up with some kind of a testimony. But there's a lot of public stuff, again, that, that doesn't always line up. Then you've got Donald Trump, who gets that same kind of rousing support, who, I mean, he's like, if if Oliver North, if we're grading on you know some kind of a curve or something, and Oliver North is an 85 and John Wayne is a 55, well, bless his heart, I mean, Trump is, <laughs> I mean, there's ways that he'd, he'd be hanging on to the left end of the scale by his fingernails. I mean, he's, and I'm not saying that to be like rude or judgmental. I'm just saying that if all that we knew of him from his public life, there wasn't a soul in America that would have called Donald Trump a, a follower of Jesus. Everything about his life was an antithesis of that. Yeah. So, but yet he gets all of this evangelical support. So I'm assuming you're going to tell us that these things are related. Yes. Yes. Right. When, when, when those exit, polls, I'm not going to send you uh, any Christmas presents. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, when those exit polls came out in 2016, right, a lot of people were really shocked uh, because it, it did seem like uh, evangelicals were betraying their values. How could they vote for somebody like Donald Trump, this you know brash, crass billionaire who was credibly uh, accused of sexual assault? And and there we were. But if you look to history, if you look to more than half a century of Christian writings and teachings on Christian masculinity, that's where you see that time and again, uh, a vision of masculinity was held up that was testosterone-fueled, um, you know, aggressive, sometimes reckless, um, because that's how God made men so that they could fulfill their roles as protectors, mm. as protectors of their family, of their faith, and of their nation. And Donald Trump just stepped into that so brilliantly, um, whether intentionally or accidentally. You know, he starts promising, and, and he's crass, and he's not conventional, and he does He's not politically correct, right? Mm-hmm. All of these things that the evangelicals had also rejected. Um, but he appears to have the power needed to fight the battles that they wanted to fight, mm-hmm. that they thought needed to be fought, right? To protect Christianity, to protect America and liberals and feminists and you know, secular humanists and so had, had all gotten in the way. And they had all promoted a vision of masculinity and femininity that left men ill-equipped to to serve this role as as aggressive protector of all that was right and good. And so Donald Trump was perfect in part because he hadn't been formed by traditional Christian virtues, you know, the fruits of the spirit, for mm-hmm. example. Mm-hmm. He wasn't constrained by loving one's neighbor or uh, loving one's enemies. And so he was the perfect fighter to do what needed to be done. Jesus and John Wayne, How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation by Kristen Cobus Dumay. 
who has been my guest today on Uncommentary. Now, you're on Twitter. How can people find you there? I'm at KK Dumez. That's K-K-D-U-M-E-Z. All right. Uh, I encourage you to follow her. She's always got good, insightful things, whether it's her own book she's talking about or whether it's the books of others or ideas or whatever. Uh, definitely worth a follow. Um, the book is good. I encourage you to get it. You won't agree with everything in it. I'm not sure I agree with everything in it. If I went back and found my notes, I'd probably be mad about some of the stuff. But uh, it's definitely worth uh, rolling over in your mind when you can grab a copy. And you just said there's a paperback version coming out soon. Yes, it'll be out uh, this summer in June. Very cool. Well, are you, so Dr. Dumay, great to have you on Uncommentary. Oh, thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. As always, thank you for listening to Uncommentary. If you'd like to keep up with me on Twitter, it's at Marty Duran. If you'd like to follow the podcast account, it's at Uncommentary Pod. Please rate and review, and whichever podcatcher you listen to, uh, whether it's uh, Apple Podcasts or Google Play or Podbean uh, or Overcast or CastBox, whichever one you use, uh, if you can rate and review, then that would be awesome. It just helps with search results and gives some credibility uh, to the podcast itself. Uh, and as you have an opportunity, if you would promote it, whether you uh, put the link from uncommentarypodcast.com uh, on your Facebook page or if you tweet the link or retweet the uh, the initial broadcast that it's live, uh, anything like that to help spread the word is always appreciated. And as always, uh, Solideo Gloria, this is Marty Duran for Uncommentary Podcast. Uncommentary Podcast.